You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're covering an interesting topic, one that I don't think many apologetic shows at all cover, but we're going to tackle it today. We are talking about composite quotations in the Bible, and I'm sure many of you right now are breathing a sob with evening. I was just thinking about composite quotations last night and I'm so thankful I came across this. Well, maybe not. But it is an important topic to cover and I've decided to get on the show to talk about someone who's one of the co-editors of a large volume, multiple volumes I think coming, in fact, on composite quotations in the New Testament. And his name is Dr. Seth Ewan. Dr. Seth Ewan took the PhD from the University of Edinburgh in New Testament Language, Literature, and Theology in 2015. Currently, he's a visiting professor, assistant professor of Greek Language and New Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois. So, uh, Dr. Ehorn, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yeah. Um, well, perhaps most recently I can say I... I uh, was going through grad school in biblical studies and decided Ph.D. was the route I was heading and uh, ended up at the University of Edinburgh. As, as you said, took the Ph.D. in New Testament uh, language, literature, and theology and got hired pretty much straight away out of that at Wheaton College, um, which is uh, my alma mater in terms of I have a master's degree from them, so I'm, it's coming home in a sense. And there I teach uh, undergrads primarily, but also a few grad courses, and really get to live out what I think is my calling as a teacher, uh, someone who tries to inspire language, uh, tries to inspire students to read the biblical texts and even other Greek texts uh, with fresh eyes and fresh insights. And so uh, I really love doing that. Um, I've found much joy in doing that myself and uh, hope to inspire my students as well. Now, we've had a few people on from Wheaton, where we've had John Walton on here, we've mm. had Lynn Cowick, maybe some others I don't know about, and I'm always glad to have someone on from Wheaton here. Now, as I said at the start, when it comes to issues that a lot of us face in the area of apologetics and such, composite quotations usually doesn't jump to the mind as one of the major ones. But, And some people might be wondering, what exactly is a composite quotation? Yeah, you're absolutely right that um, when, I, when I talk to students and they say, oh, Dr. Ehorn, what are you working on? Um, and I say, oh, I, a big book, edited book on composite quotations. And they look at me like I've just said a funny word in a different language. Uh, to their credit, I often say funny things in different languages. I teach in a department of language. Nevertheless, this is a subject that seems to be 
undervalued perhaps and certainly not as well researched as it I think needs to be. Um, so composite quotations uh, is something that we said, well, we need to define as we work on this project. Um, we set out to give a, a broad definition first and then to actually let the study, the text that we looked at, the authors we examined, inform a definition rather than try to impose a definition first and then limit that way. Um, so by the end of the project, what we ended up with was a definition that was three-part. Three uh, so we use the label composite citation or quotation as the banner term, but then we have three subcategories of it, um, combined, conflated, and then um, condensed. So there's an alliterative value there, isn't there? Yeah. Could you uh, briefly tell us what each of those are? Of course, yeah. So the, the combined um, the combined and the, and the conflated both work with two disparate texts, texts that are perhaps distant, different books or different authors even. It could be within the same author, but far enough apart that you wouldn't go, oh, there's just a few words dropped out. So like an ellipsis wouldn't fill it in and such. Right, right. So if you have these disparate texts and they're somehow brought together, we're talking either about combined or conflated. Within that smaller category, um, then combined means you have more or less equal uh, text being stitched together. So you have the first text stitched right onto the second text, um, and they're more or less equally weighted. Sometimes they're, you know, more of one text than the, than the other. Uh, but the conflated text, there's one that's a primary text, and really every all of the wording is really coming from there. And there might be a handful of words, sometimes as little as one, some of our contributors argue, and sometimes, you know, a sentence or two uh, that get conflated in and usually mixed right into the middle mm -hmm. of, of that quotation. So that's combined and then conflated. And then our third category, condensed, works with one text. Um, and then you have the lighting out of lots of words. And that's kind of a slippery category, right? Because lots of quotations uh, in ancient literature omit words, right? Like these words aren't helpful for the author's argument, so he just drops them out. Um, so you have to be careful between that and what we're calling composite, or in this case, a condensed composite. Um, a condensed citation seems to drop things out in a way that uh, maybe a reader is supposed to fill them in, maybe they're not. Um, in any event, it gives us this third category for a, a third sort of breed of animal that we're finding uh, across the literature we, we looked at. Yeah, when I started going through your material, I was very much surprised because I thought I could only think of a couple of places in the New Testament where you see these composite quotations and such. Yeah. And where it is true, I could only think of a couple, but when I look through and like in the latest one you sent me, you said, there was maybe, I think, 20 in Romans or so. I'm thinking, what, what, what have I been reading here exactly? <laughs> That's right, 20, 20 or so percent in Romans. Uh, so I think the statistic, I've got it out in front of me, actually 27% of Romans mm. quotations are composite. Wow. And that's just looking at the overt quotations or the things mm -hmm. that we can positively identify as quotations. That's not even touching allusions and other things. Um, so, yeah, it's a high percentage. The, the overall percentage we produced 
for the New Testament was 18.4%. Mm-hmm. So we're getting close to that sort of one-fifth mark, right? That's a serious piece of data that, at least until recently, has been understudied. Um, so that's the impetus for the project, and uh, I guess I was lucky to stumble across it with my co-editor. Mm-hmm. Well, one I would like to ask you about, well, the two main ones I'd like to ask you about at this talk, though, are ones that Christians have often had some trouble with. For instance, at the start of Mark, you read mm-hmm. this, and I'm going to read first from the um, NASB. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Okay, now, the thing is, though, that the first part, that's not Isaiah, that's Malachi. Now, some people say, like, for instance, John Torres of Truth in My Day says, this is why we have to go to the majority text, because, you see, the majority text says, I mean, the KJV now, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in, in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. The voice of a one crying wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So you see, if you go with that text, where then you remove the error, because it just says for prophets. But if you go with the other family, you get Isaiah, and you have an error at that point. And what do you think about that? Yeah, so it's a classic problem, uh, and you do you do well to point it out. Um, Certainly, the, the manuscript readings that do uh, change it to the plural, the prophets, mm-hmm. uh, on, on one construal of the text alleviate a problem, right? Right. Um, I would go after the, the, the issue, um, is it a problem? Mm-hmm. Do we really need to be explaining this away as a problem and looking for an answer? Um, mm-hmm. Before I answer that, though, it is clear that readers of Mark 1, 2, and 3 here read this text and discerned that there were multiple voices in this quotation. So that's interesting. Readers picked up that it was composite. Mm-hmm. Hence, hence they have a problem. It, it's not that no one recognized it. It's that actually here's the evidence that people recognized it. Um, and in fact, when Matthew and Luke quote uh, this same tradition, they have it pulled apart from Malachi. So mm-hmm. maybe even Matthew and Luke were aware that this is a composite text mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, decided not to preserve it in that form. That's that's one possibility. There are other possibilities to explain that. Um, mm. But that's an interesting phenomenon just to think about how readers took this text. I I would be personally not so concerned uh, that attributing the quotation to Isaiah is an error because of the commonality of this kind of stuff. If it was an error... We either have to say, well, errors happen 20% of the time, kind of a thing, or actually, as we try to argue, and as Chris Stanley in the conclusion of our first volume argued, I think, forcefully, mm-hmm. uh, what we have is a, a demonstrable literary uh, phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Composite quotations isn't so common that it's a sort of standard way of doing things, but it's not so uncommon that people wouldn't recognize it or use it themselves in their own writing. So... Um, we found authors, uh, I found Plutarch, you know, has quotations from multiple authors that he'll only attribute to one person, right? Mm-hmm. Is that an error? 
No, he's one of the most literate people of his day, a very good writer. That doesn't mean he couldn't make a mistake, but it means right. we shouldn't go so quickly towards those explanations. Give him the benefit other... of a doubt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say before I wanted to jump on It's an Air bandwagon and say, is there a different way of thinking about it uh, charitably uh, for these ancient authors? And I think for Mark, there is one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's multiple explanations and, um, for your readers, I should just say as the editor of, uh, as the co-editor of this book, um, of course I'm familiar with all the contents, but I didn't write the chapter on Mark. So, um, any views I'm, I'm committing to here aren't necessarily the ones I argued is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick Watts, when he looks at, uh, at this text in his, in his book, Isaiah's new Exodus in Mark, he argues the, the structure Isaiah, Malachi, Isaiah, uh, so the attribution Isaiah, the quotation with Malachi and then Isaiah, is one of Mark's characteristic sandwiches or mm-hmm. uh, uh, callations um, that we see often throughout the gospel. So just to draw that out just a bit for some of your listeners who might not be familiar, yeah. um, Mark has nine, ten, maybe eleven instances uh, where scholars are more or less agreed he has a sandwich structure. Mm-hmm. So he has a story. For example, we could pick the story of Jairus. Uh, so you have the story of Jairus, this Jewish leader, comes to Jesus, uh, and he's seeking healing for his daughter. But right in the middle of that story, Mark inserts a story of a woman who's hemorrhaging blood. And she sort of is in the scene for a few moments, and then she's gone, and then we're right back to Jairus again. Mm-hmm. And... Scholars argue Mark does this intentionally. He does it because he's not only a skillful writer, but he wants you to interpret these stories together. He wants you to see Jairus, a powerful Jewish leader, coming to Jesus from the front, hearing the news that his his child dies and sort of giving up, like, ah, don't bother, she's dead, go home. Uh, and juxtapose that with a woman hemorrhaging coming from behind, thinking if I only touch his garments, I could be healed, right? It's a contrast between power and powerless, faith and uh, faith, faithlessness and faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And so by pairing them together, we're supposed to uh, sort of do a dance with those two characters and go like, who is acting most appropriately here? Right. Um, there's another example, uh, j- just to tease that out a little bit further uh, with a fun example, um, the story of Jesus sending out his disciples, commissioning them sort of for their first ministry acts by themselves in Mark. You have that, then you have the the story of the death of John the Baptist, and then there's one little tiny verse uh, right after the death of John the Baptist where all the disciples come back to Jesus, right, mm-hmm. after he sent them out. Okay. And most readers would completely miss that, that that's actually the end of that earlier story, right? He sent them out to go do works in his name, and then they come back. Mm-hmm. Well, what's going on there? Again, it's that Mark sandwich structure. You've got the commissioning and uh, return of the disciples juxtaposed with the martyrdom of John the Baptist. We're supposed to take away, by mutually interpreting these two, that discipleship could cost you something, maybe mm-hmm. even your life. Mm, right? Right. So this is uh, what Watts argues then, is that the opening of Mark is part of this sandwich structure where you have the attribution, 
then you get uh, to, to Isaiah. Malachi starts, Isaiah finishes. And based upon um, that sandwich structure, which is characteristic for Mark, um, there's a lot of sense to that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the idea of taking seriously how the author handles uh, compositional practices within their own works is some of the strongest evidence we can appeal to. Nice. So in that sense, I really like that argument. What I felt is lacking from that argument and where I think there's more to say is attributing a text to one author and not another, right? Mm-hmm opens up certain lines of interpretation and forestalls others, right? Right. So if a, if a reader hears an attribution to Isaiah at the opening of a gospel and goes, hmm, okay, my ears are attuned to hear Isaiah quoted, and all of a sudden you go, wait, that's not from Isaiah, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've now forestalled on making connections with the Isaiahic context, at least in the first few uh, words, right? Right. So there is something kind of interesting rhetorically going on there, I think. So something I would argue, or, uh, and I think draw out a little bit even in the conclusion of, of Volume 2 of the, the Composite Citations books, is the idea that an attribution invites readers to make connections in certain directions, Right. Right. So by by tagging Isaiah and not Malachi or even the prophets, he wants to make sure that the whole quotation is understood through an Isianic frame more than an even Malachi 3, 1 mm-hmm. frame, right? So he wants that to be where you pull all of this uh, uh, thinking back to. And there's a lot about that that makes sense. I, Malachi um, is useful – to Mark because he uh, it establishes, I think, a temporal framework, uh, an eschatological framework, the, the coming day of the Lord, judgment, even a figure of Elijah coming to return. Uh, but the Isianic context actually um, has a lot going on as well, right? Um, right. It's been called the gospel in miniature. Right, right. And especially the, the, the end of this gospel, or the, I'm sorry, the end of Isaiah, uh, a declaration of hope that the end of the exile is coming, mm-hmm. um, God returning to Zion, restoring Israel. Like, if that's the frame that Mark wants the quotation to be drawn into more than the Malachi thing, um, attributing it to Isaiah helps the reader get there, mm-hmm. right? Right. And I, th- I think there's a, l- I think that's deeply uh, what's going on uh, in terms of the attribution to Isaiah. So to come back maybe to where you started. To attribute the text to the prophets, just does that open up interpretive vistas or does it forestall them, right? Um, I'd be concerned if, if it closed down something that Mark wanted to leave wide open in terms of uh, where we seek to find wider uh, references from the quotation or wider context from the quotation being drawn in. Yeah, I like what you were saying about how Mark phrased things because I know Mike Lacona has said before that uh, when the ancients wrote history, they didn't write it like we do. We're much more interested in give us the facts, express everything exactly how it happened, when it happened, and such. With them, they wanted history to kind of be like a work of art, as it were. But you weren't just telling the facts, you were telling a story, and you could thematically arrange that story a certain way to bring out the emphases you wanted. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Um, it, it, it's something that my my first year students uh, that I teach at Wheaton College um, have a lot of fun with when we read the Gospels, because for some of them they'll come into a class and have a and this isn't uniquely true at Wheaton, of course, it's true everywhere, I think, but uh, I speak from my own context. Um, we come in with this sort of like meta story of Jesus, right? Jesus did all these things, and here's the one story. And I almost have to tell them, like, you've come in here with one story, um, you'll leave with four. I'm going to give you four Gospels, um, which is the four Gospels that are in our New Testament. And that's just it. We start going through the texts. We start seeing how the authors chose to do things in certain ways. Uh, You know, Luke chooses to keep Jesus in Galilee and eventually bring him down. Ten chapters it takes him to get down to Jerusalem. And then he stays there, and all of his disciples stay there, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a departure from what Mark and even Matthew do, right? There's There's a little bit of up and down in Matthew and Mark, and then we're down in Jerusalem for a week, right? Um, But it's interesting. I think Luke, he thinks what he's doing is orderly, right? The idea of like, let's just have the one sort of slow movement down. Mm -hmm. I think when he talks about in his prologue, giving an orderly account, um, I mean, we could cash that idea out in a number of ways, but certainly it includes his geographic structuring and the idea that in Luke, we're always heading towards Jerusalem and the cross. And then in his second part, Acts, we're always moving away from Jerusalem. I think he thinks that's orderly. So certainly the, the sort of precision chronologically and other things uh, aren't concerns that ancient authors had. They, they, they have thematic geographic and other concerns that dictate how they do history or, or in this case, how they do biography. Yeah, and uh, I, I also know there are some people who get very concerned when we talk about that we need to understand the biblical culture to understand the text, because they say, well, that kind of sounds like a, a sort of cultural relativism in the Bible and such. And when I hear, I think, the thing is, you do have to understand a culture, because if you don't, what you're going to do is read into a modern American Western culture and then say, well, look, the Bible doesn't fit a modern American Western culture, therefore the Bible has to be wrong. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That's that's a common theme in much of my work. I like to, I've stolen a phrase from, I think, Donald Jewell, uh, the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. And what I like to say is ancient authors or writers don't play by our rules of the game, right? Mm-hmm. They have their own. Right. Um, and when we get sort of, worked up about, oh, they don't do things the way we do, um, we learn more about ourselves, perhaps, than mm-hmm. we do about them, right? right? If that's where we stop, right? And so what we need to do is, is invest the time and the energy to learn their own rules and how they, how they work within those conventions. You know, if, in fact, if we said Mark 1 was an error and the KJV corrects it and such, I think you'd still have a problem because when you get to Matthew 27... And yes, people, there's a passage you can go to in Matthew 27 about inerrancy that doesn't involve the saints coming back from the dead. But when you uh, go to Matthew 27, you start around verse 9 in the KJV as, Then was for fear that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took for thirty pieces of silver the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave him for a part of spirit as the Lord appointed me. 
Well, there's a message in there from Zechariah, and that from Jeremiah. So it sounds like you'd have a problem anyway. Yeah, so there are um, that text in Matthew 27, 9 and 10. There's another one, uh, Matthew 13, 35, mm. that I think has the exact same problem. I can talk about that other one in just a moment, but I want to add to the, the problem texts that uh, evidence the same mm. idea. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think there's a couple of things going on here. Um, and here I can draw from the fantastic work of the, our contributor, Martin Mencken, uh, who unfortunately, he, he died last year, but mm. not before giving us this wonderful chapter uh, representing his work in Matthew. He's got a wonderful monograph as well called Matthew's Bible on quotations, Matthew's quotations of, the, of Scripture. Um, and this was more or less expanding and building upon that. We were just so pleased that he was able to contribute and I just feel deeply honored. I think this is one of the last things he wrote before he passed away, uh, untimely. Um, but he argues, um, I think very forcefully, that Matthew 27, 9 through 10 is, of course, largely a quotation from Zechariah 11, mm -hmm. 13, with a minor conflation. So there's that term we used earlier of conflated quotations. There's a minor conflation from Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. And he argues that uh, Matthew has signaled this subsidiary text or this secondary, smaller, conflated idea. Um, the idea being perhaps that's the uh, where he wants his readers to make associations with as they're thinking through. So like have a Jeremianic framework in mind. Mm -hmm. um, but he also argues that he wants them to make a connection with with that conflated element itself, just like, hey, here's the thing that's off, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a signal that there is something else going on there. Uh, Zechariah 11, or I'm trying to remember, C.H. Uh, Dodd argues that I think Zechariah 6 to 11, something like that, is part of a cluster of texts that were popular, famous, important in early Christianity. And so Mencken and others uh, would argue that early Christians were familiar with this text. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so to have a something that wasn't quite right, something that was a little bit off, to flag that up for them could be useful. Mm -hmm. um, so that's more or less what he argues. I, I hope I've done his argument justice. If not, your readers could, of course, buy the book and, and yeah. do it better than I would. But um, to press into that a little bit more, though, the conflation from Jeremiah... It's, it's mainly a single word, agros, so the, the word for you know, agriculture, uh, our word comes from that. Um, but there's a number of things beyond just that single word that bring the Jeremiah text into relationship with the Zechariah text that's quoted, mm -hmm. um, shared lexical words, uh, words like, I'll, I'll give them in English uh, just for convenience here, but words like to weigh, so a verb weighing something, uh, our word mm -hmm. for silver, uh, a, a large number of phrases um, uh, about the word of the Lord. Um, I'm just looking at these right now. Uh, in any event, uh, the texts themselves are sort of mutually interpretive by themselves. And then what, he's, what he argues then is in the quotation in Matthew 13, while he's mainly quoting from the one, it's brought into exegetical relationship with this other text that provides these interpretive analogies. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and those interpretive analogies um, uh, are useful, actually, to Matthew's larger context, uh, because in, in Matthew 27, as you'll know, he's talking about uh, the chief priests taking silver, putting it, uh, so it's the, the context of Judas hanging himself, right? So they're, right. they're taking the silver, buying a field. Um, so we, we encounter a field, we encounter money and chief priests in Jeremiah, um, and so to have that Jeremianic framework, perhaps in Wyndham, lots of interesting temple things happen in Jeremiah, don't they? Um, is a useful place to direct a reader's attention or thinking mm-hmm. as they encounter the citation. You know, I, I'm wondering, I mean, when I read your work, you had a whole litany of great scholars. I think even Richard Barkham was in there, if I'm remembering correctly. We, we did not have Richard... Um, uh, on the second volume, is that what you're thinking of? Um, one of them. One of them that you sent me. I thought you had him. So we had. I could. I could uh, do my best to remember them all. Um, so Sean Adams and myself are the mm. editors. Um, Sean had a chapter on composite uh, quotations in Homer and Greek education. Uh, I wrote on Plutarch. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Williams, I, we had two Williamses. Uh, Williams at University of Edinburgh wrote on um, composite quotations in Latin letter writers. Uh, we had Jonathan Norton on composite quotations in the Damascus document. Garrick Allen on composite uh, features in Jewish pseudepigraphic works. James Royce on Philo. Martin Albel on the Testimonia Hypothesis and Composite Quotations, and Felipe Bobichon on Justin Martyr. That was the first volume, and then it had a conclusion by Christopher Stanley, uh, who's, of course, a well-known scholar, uh, especially in the realm of Paul and, and citation techniques. So we were just thrilled that he was interested in responding to the first volume. I'm curious, when you get in touch with all these scholars and such, for many of them, was this kind of also a new area for them to explore as well? Yeah, so it wasn't new for Chris Stanley. Um, he's, I mean, he's aware of the phenomenon. He was excited about the project because while he was aware of it, um, it wasn't something he studied in any depth at all. I mean, he flagged it up when he came across it in Paul. He's aware of it, um, but he wasn't setting out to do any kind of systematic study of it. So when we approached him and talked to him about it and really got some good coaching in the early moments of it. He was excited about it. And that was, it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, others, uh, we were sort of calling their attention to something perhaps for their, for the first time. And, uh, you know, within moments they're like, Oh yeah, I think, I think I've seen that kind of stuff before. And yeah, it'd be fun to look at it. Um, our, our contributor on Justin Martyr, uh, Felipe Bobichon at, uh, can't remember which university he's at in in Paris, Uh, but he is a, I mean, he's one of the top Justin Martyr scholars, has probably, there's a few editions of the dialogue, Justin's dialogue out, and he has one of them. So when you think of like, what are the critical editions that scholars use, he produced one of them. So when I asked him, he was like, oh yeah, this happens all the time. Um, And he was just jazzed and excited to do it. And, uh, found a lot of interesting examples and and really couldn't even exhaust even exhausted the examples in the dialogue because there's just so many mm-hmm. um so 
yeah, we were met surprisingly with really interested contributors who were uh, were aware that these kinds of things happen, but perhaps not the extent. Uh, and in some ways, we're trying to cut a path almost for the first time. There hasn't hasn't been a lot of focused research on this stuff. Um, commentators throw sentences out there, you know, oh, this is a common Jewish thing, or oh, this is a common whatever. But in many ways, we were trying to actually produce something from the ground up that, for the most part, hasn't been done in a, in a systematic way. And so that was a lot of fun. And I think the contributors got that vision early, and uh, that made it really fun as well. Yeah. There were two things you said that I think can kind of combine together in such one was saying, like, you know, this was uh, done in Justin Martyr all the time. And then how some commentators just say, well, this was a common Jewish practice to ascribe something to a greater prophet and things like that and such. And yeah. so if we're going to say this was a common Jewish practice, do we have any evidence of Jews outside the New Testament doing this? Yeah, um, we certainly do. So the chapters on the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, that we wrote uh, or that we produced in the first book would be some examples of that. Um, and I, there's so much more literature that could be canvassed to find these things. Um, so we have by no means exhausted the literature, um, but hopefully try to demonstrate at least some instances where it shows up. Um, I noted uh, in the last two or three weeks, there was an article published in Dead Sea Discoveries, a journal I think published by Brill, uh, on compound illusion uh, of, I think it was uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and Isaiah. So it's the idea of like being formed from clay or being formed from dust and molded like clay. Uh, God's action, creative action, and then uh, connecting it with humans. But the author of this found these compound illusions coming from Genesis and Isaiah. I, I can't remember which Isaiahic text it was, uh, but found them not only in, in uh, uh, 1Q-H, uh, but found it in, I think, Sirach as well. So he was finding similar patterns, uh, at least allusions, maybe not citations. So that would be another Jewish example, though. Um, there's certainly uh, Jewish examples and Jewish precedent, but um, I... I expect perhaps where you're going with this question is um, it also occurs in Greek and Latin uh, authors as well. And so one of the things we wanted to do was say, hey, if it's not a uniquely Jewish thing, right, why are, why are we interpreting it only within a Jewish pattern of uh, citation? Mm -hmm. um, so by doing that, by zooming out a little bit, allowing other authors to come in, what we found was – um, yes, these authors are dealing with different sources, but they're not handling text differently, right? Awesome. They're, they're pairing them with key words. They're pairing them with analogous themes. Um, they're attributing one source rather than another or none at all. You know? So the, the data, although the, uh, the arguments and the sources look different, the data often looked very similar when it came to drawing sort of meta-conclusions. Mm -hmm. And that was a really interesting thing uh, to find. Um, and it's, it's suggestive for a whole number of things, but it's that sometimes New Testament scholars can get so entrenched in a Jewish background kind of an idea at the expense of interpreting the New Testament within a Hellenistic environment, um, a Jewish Hellenistic environment even. Um, and I think that's an important uh, 
Uh, It's certainly not a new conclusion. Martin Hengel argued it uh, forcefully in his book, Judaism and Hellenism. Uh, And there's a reason why biblical scholars uh, a generation ago all were classicists first. Mm -hmm. Um, We've, I think, over-specialized and perhaps lost just that wide breadth of reading. And so that's what we wanted to do in this project is to bring some of that back in. And that's what we found is uh, the, the... Patterns of scholarly reading that we find in Homeric uh, use look functionally similar to some of the patterns of reading we're finding in these Jewish authors as well, which means we can and perhaps even should study these patterns side by side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think a parallel that could be drawn, in fact, with this is that uh, the question often brought up by atheists and skeptics and such is, Look at the way the New Testament cites the Old Testament. I mean, it's just butchers the text. It doesn't pay any attention to the context <laughs> and such. But they'll never do anything like, say, pick up uh, Richard Longenecker's Biblical Exegesis in the Apostolic Period and such and look and say, well, maybe what the New Testament writers were doing was a perfectly acceptable practice that everyone in Judaism was doing at the time. And so yeah. we could say about this... Maybe the New Testament writers were also still doing a perfectly acceptable practice that was done not only by everyone in Judaism, but everyone in the known world at that time. Yeah, and that's where um, Christopher Stanley's work, uh, his his first monograph is called, uh, what is it called? Paul and Scripture, Citation mm-hmm. Technique in mm-hmm. Paul and Contemporary sources, something like that. It's with Cambridge University Press, I think 1992. Um, He argues in that book, and it's had enough time to make its ripples and to be reviewed, and so I can say confidently, because it's not my own work, I can say (laughs) confidently it's been well received. Mm -hmm. Um, What he argues is Paul is a man of his day when it comes to how he handles his sources, right? Mm -hmm. So we we shouldn't sort of Play, play like he's an exception to a rule because he's a New Testament author or a Jewish mm-hmm. author or something. Right? Right. He looks like other Jewish authors in terms of the, what he does. He looks like Greek authors in terms of what he does. Um, and in fact, um, in, perhaps in his book, but I have a statistic in mind from a, a, another book that came out in the 80s by D.A. Koch, uh, a classic work on Pauline quotations in, in German. He, he suggests something, something north of like 55% of the time Paul's quotations are modified, and sometimes just really minor ways, uh, uh, you know, aligning grammatical voice or something, or getting second-person pronouns to third-person or something, um, but sometimes in, in more drastic ways. Um, mm. So I, I, I don't throw that statistic out to scare. I mean, it's a big number, um, but what it tells you is he and others didn't seem to be bothered by this kind of a thing. Um, and again, it's sort of our exacting uh, Chicago manual of style kind of approach to how we handle uh, yeah. <laughs> grammar and syntax and quotation. That's that's framing why we think it's a problem. And he apparently didn't have any concern for that. Yeah, I think that uh, Mandy Richards and Brandon O'Brien, their book about Paul behaving badly, I think the last <laughs> chapter is about Paul's use of scripture. I mean, I've said that. If Paul went into a modern Bible college or seminary today 
and turned in one of the letters that he'd written. He'd be given an F in hermeneutics today. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's of course, a funny... Uh, <laughs> I've heard that in multiple contexts. I've not read that book, so I, I don't know how they uh, come back and address that. I, but, yeah, certainly, um, I think there are... There are some interesting things going on when Paul quotes. Uh, uh, that's probably you should probably have Greg Beale on or something to talk through all of the uh, the range of, of kinds of uses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, cer- certainly, they're not always straightforward. Um, certainly, sometimes Paul's arguments are are complex, and mm-hmm. his his scriptural arguments are very complex. Uh, uh, I find that exciting and fun, and I try to instill that same feeling in my students as well right this is not easy stuff right Mm -hmm. so let's dig into it let's have fun with it let's work through the source text and see what we see Mm -hmm. Um, um, there's something going on there i think i think those though who might find um paul's text extremely problematic and I don't want to whitewash everything and say there's nothing problematic but those who might find him extremely problematic are perhaps just looking at the sort of rhetoric of what Paul says uh, and saying, is he just saying something to sort of move the argument forward and uh, he'll, he'll say anything, right, just to move the argument forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's, there's something to the point that Paul's quotations are rhetorical. They're meant to move arguments and enforce his argument and, and prove things. Um, but that doesn't mean that... Uh, He's willing to do anything, mm-hmm. uh, even heavy-handed. Uh, and I think even the way Paul talks about himself as a herald, as opposed to a, a rhetor or something, even a, in a text like First Corinthians, would need to be brought to bear on these larger questions. Yeah, and I, I think something we could say also, since we talked so much with Paul here, is how you said that about around 20% of the quotations in Romans are Composite quotations. Yeah, we often look. That looks like a straightforward quotation to me. How are how are there so many com- composite quotations, and we're missing them? Yeah, well, certainly uh, in modernity, um, perhaps the reason we're missing them is uh, most basically perhaps biblical illiteracy. So mm-hmm. we're just not we're not aware. <laughs> um, but we also have an embarrassment of riches. We have critical editions. Uh, we have good study Bibles and things like that with mm-hmm. marginalia, columns, footnotes, and things like that that mark them for us. Um, so even when they're marked for us, why don't we see them? I think the answer there is laziness. Mm. Is we, we just read over, skip over things. Um, it's amazing, right? Um, again, I'll have... Uh, in, in several contexts I've taught in, you start, sort of take students through a, the most basic method um, when Paul or Matthew or whoever quotes a text, like, look where it's from, go back and look it up, just read it, maybe read a little bit into the context, figure out what it's about. And um, I've had students give just mundane observations like, oh, I'd never done that before. <laughs> that was really interesting. And of course, as a scholar, I'm going... Well, that's, you know, that's painfully obvious, but uh, sometimes I can forget that the things that are obvious and clear to me aren't always obvious and clear to others. And so thus we teach and, and need those kinds of uh, things to be said. Mm-hmm. 
So what are some examples, favorite examples you'd use of composite quotations in, say, the Book of Romans? Yeah, there's, um, I mean, there's the classic one uh, in chapter three, mm-hmm. uh, which is introduced uh, more or less as a proof that all are unrighteous. And then Paul unleashes, we, we call it a, a katina. Uh, of quotations, I think as many as seven. I've, I've, I've heard some people talk about eight sources, but let's say seven uh, seems like a, a nice, perfect number, right? Mm-hmm. Um, seven sources all kind of built into that one citation. Um, mm-hmm. No delineation on when one starts and one stops. It's interesting that Justin Martyr quotes a very similar katina. In his, mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember if it's in the dialogue or his first, I think it's the first apology. Um, he has a very similar, though, uh, set of psalm texts all, again, stacked together just like Paul's. It's not identical, but it's close. Um, and it, so for some, that suggests that there's a third source that both Paul and Justin had, and the Katina had a life prior to Paul, even. Mm-hmm. Um, the other option is, of course, that Justin could well know Paul. Um, but that argument, um, I think that's a reasonable argument, but it's not an easy argument because Paul uh, is never quoted clearly or obviously by Justin. So he never says, thus Paul says, and then starts quoting. And he never even mentions Paul by name, actually. So he's sort of silent about him. And that's vexed interpreters, of course. Uh, why leave him out? Is it because he doesn't have a copy of his letters in the middle of the second century in Rome? Or is it because there's some other concern, you know, like Marcion loved Paul, so Justin, like, oh, I'm not going to appeal to Paul. That's the heretic's apostle, right? Those are something going on there. It's hard to say. Um, but that, of course, brings us back to the question of thinking about how Justin has knowledge of Paul. Um, our contributor argues that... Um, uh, this is Mark Reisner on Romans, argues that Romans 3, 10 through 18 is a pre-Pauline formulation. Um, that's, I would say that's probably, insofar as one could say there's a consensus, I think most scholars lean towards that direction. Some people think this is a, a Pauline formulation, maybe even one that he formulated prior to writing Romans and then incorporated in. Um, but our contributor argues it's not a Pauline one, it's a pre-Pauline one that he incorporates in. Um, I think the argument's pretty good. Um, he, he suggests that Paul attributes this to Torah at the end. So I think in 3.19 he says, as the law says, or as Torah says. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in the quotation, Paul never quotes any text that could be called Torah. Um, now, it's true that the Psalms are sometimes just called Torah, uh, so we can go to the Gospel of John, and I think even a reference or two in Paul, and find him quoting a psalm, but he calls it Torah. Um, so perhaps it's just that. But in his other katina in the book of Romans, um, when he quotes Torah and talks about Torah, he'll often have a katina with Torah, prophets, and writings, all of them in there at once. Um, this one doesn't have Torah in it. Um, and so uh, our contributor says, for a number of reasons, but primarily this one, if he wanted to make something that looked like these other ones, he w- he was perfectly capable of, of doing it. Um, J- 
just as he's done over here. Uh, and so the fact that it doesn't seem to match up with, uh, with those might suggest that this comes from an earlier, uh, an earlier tradition than Paul, and he found it useful, and therefore he used it. Um, of course, these, these kinds of interpretive judgments are all doing the best with the data we can, right? Trying to, trying to weigh things as best as we can, um, mm. but trying to get at why certain texts seem to, to fit in so nicely into an argument. Um, well, it's because the author makes them, tailors them right on the spot, right? So that statistic I gave earlier, 55% of Pauline texts are adapted in some way, right? Well, mm-hmm. on the one hand, that might be scary. On the other hand, this is Paul making his quotations fit into his arguments exactly the way they need to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this might be one of those examples where he takes a preformed text and just uses it and, and didn't make it look like some of the other things as much. Yeah, now, when I think about the Romans Frigatina, I think that one kind of surprised me when I heard included because I wouldn't have honestly thought of it as a composite quotation. I would have thought of it as several different quotations put together to establish right. a point. I mean, our our interact with a lot of skeptics online such, and I've got an project's database here on my computer with several different quotes now put up a list of quotations. Here's what some scholars say about this topic and such. And that, I wouldn't look and say, well, that seems like a composite quotation if it's, if it's all one thing, but you do this as a composite quotation. Could, could you explain that some? Yeah, so we treat this as a combined quotation. So using mm-hmm. those taxonomies from earlier. So we have uh, as many as seven different discrete texts brought into contact. Um, for us, then, part of our definition, uh, which I don't think I talked about much earlier, uh, is the idea that they're fused together without any breaks, right? So there aren't words that disjoin the text, uh, chi pollen, chi ta, chi, de, like various things that might syntactically signal to a reader that we're moving from one source to another. Of course, in in modern edition, sort of post-Gutenberg, right, we think, well, isn't it obvious when somebody quotes? We have quotation marks. We have, you know, other syntactical means of signaling, capitalization, uh, punctuation. Uh, ancient authors uh, didn't seem to develop uh, these kinds of things in the early period. So mm-hmm. quotation marks are a, uh, uh, historically a modern phenomenon, right? So if you go look at an ancient Greek manuscript, and I love to show students this, uh, I'll just start pulling up papyri, pulling up early codices even, right? There aren't quote marks. There aren't even spaces. Yeah, there's no spaces, uh, right? There's no punctuation. Um, it, it's a, these kinds of things develop over time, uh, and they often are developing as texts are being uh, used liturgically. So the analogy is like somebody asks you to read something at a wedding or whatever it is, and you're like, okay, what am I going to read? And you, you get it, and you get out your, your pen or your marker or whatever it is, and you start like, okay, I better learn how to pronounce that word and uh, better make sure I get all the syllables here. Right? You mark it up. You annotate it so that when you read it out loud, mm-hmm. you sound like, oh, I sound good and polished, right? Well, this is what's happening with uh, lots of literature, not just biblical literature, but I'll speak about that because that's my particular area of expertise. Um, Early New Testament papyri have very little marking in terms of 
punctuation, these kinds of things. Uh, uh, and the practice is developing towards uh, texts that have accent marks, spacing between words, punctuation, because they're being used. So the, as these texts are used, that's mm -hmm. when these features start to come in. Now, the quotation marks themselves seem to be uh, developed from a practice of marking quotations in the column using a, a signal called uh, diplay or uh, diply in the plural. Um, it sort of looks like a little hash mark, uh, almost like a caret or even, even like a modern but single, not a double, quotation mark. Those all start in the column. And what's interesting is um, I've got a little article, uh, not out yet, but in the works, trying to track how do, how do ancient writers mark quotations. Mm -hmm. um, and it, bu it, it builds from sort of pre-evidence, right? Here is an acknowledged quotation, but there's no marks at all. But it's signaled by the author, like thus it says, um, towards much, much, much later texts where there's marks in the column, there's source attributions in the column. Um, and then that even takes us to printed texts where before we even had quotation marks formally uh, in type uh, typeset, even the quote marks were just put in the column, just like these handwritten manuscripts were. Um, so none of those features were early. Uh, and what that means is, as ancient readers encounter something uh, like Romans 3, 10 to 18, uh, they have to make a judgment, right? Is this one quotation? Is it many? Mm -hmm. um, so with this particular quotation, uh, there's lots of reasons to think it's composite. One of them, of course, is uh, that's simply how it's been read for a long time, uh, marked as a single quotation, uh, even by ancient readers. Um, but perhaps most interestingly, in, I think, Codex Alexandrinus of uh, the Greek Old Testament, the, the Septuagint tradition, um, we have the Pauline quotation has found its way into, I, I can't remember if it's after Psalm 14 or 49, I, one of those texts, the full quotation from Paul has found its way into the manuscript tradition of a Greek Old Testament of the Psalms, mm -hmm. um, suggesting that, oh, we know this is mostly from the Psalms, right? And it's a coherent singular quotation even. Mm -hmm. uh, so, oh, let's just put it with the Psalms where it belongs. Um, so that, again, suggests that readers thought of it as a single text, uh, even if they knew it was a combined text, um, rather than a number of distinct texts. And I think that's important. Um, we could talk about how texts are presented with quotation marks and things like that in modern editions, right? Are we signaling uh, discrete sources, or are we keeping texts uh, continuous, perhaps the way Paul had in mind when he put them in. Um, it's, it's a subtle point, but the idea that um, are we honoring the wishes of the author by demarcating every little thing, uh, or are we keeping them together because he wants us to read them all together, right? Mm -hmm. right. Um, now, that's, that's a fun example. That's a complex example. Um, there are other examples that are similar. Um, for example, there's uh, a text... Uh, uh, gosh, I'm going to forget the ancient author, so I'll, I'll just appeal to the book again. Uh, readers can pick up the book and read the conclusion chapter uh, where we have an example of an ancient Greek author quoting a number of opening lines from like the Iliad and the Odyssey and something from Euripides. And um, opening lines are sort of, you know, the line everybody knows, right? Like, 
You know, it you was know the, the best of times. It was the worst of right. times. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Molly was of, dead. Right. So you, you know, you might not know the next sentence or the next, you know, anything else, but you know those opening lines. Mm. Um, there's so there's an example there uh, that we talk about of a number of opening lines stacked together without any demarcation uh, spatially, without any syntactical, you know, chi, de, those kinds of things uh, in Greek. But we suggest there, because it's so common, opening lines, people would know it's actually just a list, mm. right? They're right. so easily able to distinguish these f- extremely familiar lines that, uh, that they know it's a list. And in fact, when you read the context of the, the work in question, um, we, we see that actually it was intended to be a list of arguments. So uh, all one has to do is just uh, exercise good reading uh, etiquette and see that that's what's going on there. Even the halfway point, so I can mind when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I've got Dr. Seth Ewan on here. He's talking about his work on composite quotations. But if you're here next week, and I hope you are, we have a very interesting story on. Some of you might have heard about this lady, a professor who actually came out of a homosexual lifestyle and is now an evangelical Christian. And she's going to be coming on here to talk about her story some, and what we can do to help reach the homosexual community, such a Rosalia Butterfield will be my guest next week on the Deeper Waters podcast. For now, let's get back to Dr. Ehorn talking about composite quotations. Now, something that I'm wondering here is, okay, we go to the Catina in Romans 3. I can understand why Paul would do that. I mean, I think that's the same kind of thing I do when I present a whole bunch of scholars' quotations and such. It's kind of you put up all these arguments, and then I was like, okay, I'm convinced this is what the Bible says then. Okay. But when we go to places like Mark 1 and Matthew 27, it doesn't seem as clear. Why would authors back then engage in composite quotations? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we had a th- uh, something of a consensus across a number of our uh, contributors as they talked about the kinds of things authors did when they quoted uh, composite quotations. But one contributor in particular, Sean Adams, um, talked about functions of composite uh, quotations. Mm -hmm. Um, And he gave three particular functions. He was your co-editor of this also. He's he's my co-editor, yes. So uh, uh, worked on uh, not only the introduction chapters of both books and the conclusion, but in his chapter on uh, quotations of Homer across a range of authors. He developed uh, a framework that I think made a lot of sense and even uh, worked with what the other contributors were finding. Mm-hmm. Um, so we summarized that again, uh, his his functions in the second volume. Um, and they are this. I'll just read them so I, so I get them right. 
Um, some of them, some composites, especially condensed, have a summative function, uh, allowing the author to draw upon material from one passage while excising irrelevant or potentially distracting material. Similarly, quoting and opening, uh, the opening and closing verses of a passage could invite the reader to fill in missing material, bringing the whole section into mind for the reader. Second, some composite citations allow the author to create a tailored saying by combining two or more passages or authors. In these examples, the author brings together disparate texts to create a new uh, phrase or line that specifically fulfills the quoting author's needs, providing a more appropriate soundbite to advance their argument. And third, uh, some composite citations were used to show off the literary knowledge and prowess of the author and to improve the reading experience. In some cases, the reader might be expected to catch crafted stylizations, and other times the author is explicitly marking or signaling what's done, drawing the reader's attention to the creativity. Um, those, those are three, and I think those were pretty common. So just to, just to maybe pull some of those over to some of the New Testament texts um, uh, for a moment, to think of showing off literary prowess, right? You think like, oh, does Paul do that? Or does Matthew do that or, or something? Um, it happens a lot in Greek, of course, um, demonstrating one's uh, facility and learnedness. And even Seneca, the letter writer, uh, when he's writing to his friends, he, he'll have a number of correspondences where he says, oh, here's, here's something I thought you'd like, right? And then he'll quote. Yeah. Uh, and then it, his friend seems to do. Yeah, I think this was done largely as a way in that culture of gaining honor for oneself. Yeah. You'd be seen as an honorable person in the side of everyone else. Yeah, and I, I think one way that explanation of, of a function might map onto, say, the New Testament is um, you think about like a letter like Romans where Paul mm. quotes so extensively. Um, why? Especially if he's writing primarily to Gentiles, Right. Mm-hmm. Who I'm not saying they wouldn't know Israel scriptures, um, but you know why that as opposed to certain other letters. Um, one reason could be it shows his facility, right? It mm-hmm. shows he is scribally literate. It shows he is a master reader of these texts, and that's a very similar explanation to that function in other literature, right? So it's demonstrating his his prowess and facility, and that's meant to do something, right? For Paul, authorize him as, as someone uh, that they should listen to, that they should right. support financially, that kind of a thing. Um, so I think those functions, while not exhaustive of, of all the features, probably cluster together as the most important three that we saw across all. I'll say just to repeat them, just, uh, just to be a good teacher for a moment, uh, summative function, um, tailoring for a specific argument, and then uh, literary prowess and dexterity. Because also for Paul, this was a church that he had never met in person. So in essence, he also has to build up his reputation. Excuse me, especially since so many of these people here will know about Peter. Yes, say, you know what? I'm I'm on a good level too. I'm someone you should listen to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Now, now one other explanation that you point to is to kind of draw people into a wider background path of what was being discussed and such. And mm-hmm. that puts us back on something else. You talk about biblical literacy. 
today because Paul is writing to Gentile churches, and apparently these Gentile churches should have already been familiar enough with the Old Testament at that point. They look and say, oh, yeah, I know what Paul is quoting there. And that's remarkable, I think, because back in that time, most of these people probably wouldn't even have their own Old Testament. And yet they were supposed to know the text. Today, every single one of us has one, and we hardly know the text. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it feels like a modern problem, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, but even ancient authors lamented, uh, for example, the birth of the Codex. So as writing technology was advancing uh, and improving, there's even, uh, uh, it escapes my thinking right now, but uh, I recall the substance of it. Uh, one ancient author sort of sort of goes, uh-oh, now I won't have to memorize, or now people won't have to memorize as much because the technology, and for him it was just a book, something easy to write in, easy to thumb through, as opposed to a scroll, uh, which is harder to hold and handle and manipulate and find uh, what you're I think what it. you're talking about <laughs> is found in one of the dialogues of Plato, actually, with one god coming to another god and saying, I've invented a tool that will aid in memorization. It's called writing. And the, ever, <laughs> the greater god says to him, you idiot, you haven't invented a tool to help them remember. You've invented a tool to help them forget because forget. as soon as they write it down, they won't remember it. Right, yeah. So that's certainly, um, yeah, that's certainly one of, the, one of the examples. There's another one later, I believe, but that's certainly in the spirit of, of what I'm thinking of. Yeah. The idea that the mind is no longer the tablet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this external thing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we live very uh, externalized lives. We're always thinking about how much hard drive space we have. And, you know, uh, if you're anything like me, you're deleting photos or whatever it is from your various eye devices all the time yes. to make more yes. space because we live our lives uh, by externalized hard drives now, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I tell people, if you're talking about memorization and things like that such, and you're comparing a text-based society to an oral-based society, you really just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. What does that have to do, though, with the idea of biblical literacy? Because, I mean, we did kind of get track from that point, but still, it does look like back in these days, even the people who didn't own books would be expected to understand the Old Testament. Yeah, so th- this is an area of, of huge debate, and we have to think about the problem differently. So with Gentiles, especially in the early period, how much literacy do they have of Israel scriptures? It's harder to say. Certainly, I think Paul's communities that he forms they're reading texts, paralleling synagogue practices, but you know, early converts aren't going to have years of of that sort of built into them. Um, they're not literate themselves for the most part. I I still think um, uh, Harris's work on ancient literacy, William Harris's work, uh, mm-hmm. which he projects somewhere between ten and twenty percent of people in antiquity are, are literate and probably on that lower side of it. Um, that's a, a good number, and we wouldn't expect early Christians to be any higher or lower than that, right? They should just fall right within that. About 20% or less, 10 to 20% of them, might have been literate, and maybe less if we take 
Paul's communities. Uh, Paul says not many of you are knowledgeable in First uh, Corinthians one, I think twenty nine or so. Um, so are these people literate? Um, well, they certainly don't have a pedigree uh, built into them from from their birth, the way Jewish people would, uh, who, for example, attended synagogue regularly, heard readings every Sabbath, perhaps even sang psalms at home as part of their devotional uh, life, as part of their practice. So there's something to be said just about being careful with what the data allows us to say. Um, and I think, again, I'll, I'll appeal to Chris Stanley's work on, uh, he, has a, he has a really good book on, I think it's called The Rhetoric of Quotation. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things he does in that book uh, is he talks about Paul's audiences, not in the abstract but in sort of concrete terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't sort of pretend that he can know the literacy of Paul's readers at Rome or Corinth or anything, but he develops um, sort of tiers of like, here's what a competent person, a literate person would understand. Here's what a sort of middle of the road, and here's what like the lowest level of education and, and learnedness. And, mm-hmm. you know, they have, they have a subs, uh, subsistence level job and, you know, they don't have time for, any of this stuff, what would they understand? And it's a fascinating approach because we tend to sort of take a maximalist approach uh, in the scholarly field. And Stanley's sort of trying to say, hey, you know, why haven't we done this in an examined way? Um, So that's been really helpful. Um, Of course, what we can say, though, is if there is a mixed audience, right, people who have knowledge and competence in these texts could provide explanations. And even... Paul's own letter carriers could provide explanations right. about what about what he means, and that's there's actually been some really exciting work about that. Uh, so when Paul sends a text, um, someone has to convey that, has to actually carry it and bring it, deliver it. Presumably they're there, um, maybe reading it themselves out loud, uh, but certainly answering questions after it's read out loud. Uh, so if some of Paul's arguments get tricky. They can say, hey, what, what did Paul mean there? Um, and uh, that's the kind of thing where even someone on the lowest level could be enlightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Stanley's <laughs> point is maybe that person on the lowest tier, the, the least informed reader, they might not have a question. <laughs> mm-hmm. They might simply accept Paul's arguments at face value, not even think about the background or the context uh, of any scriptural argument at, at all because they don't have enough training, Right. It, it could be like the average layman who goes into a church, they've just been raised Christian all their lives, they've been taught to question it and such, and they hear what a preacher says and says, well, that makes sense, I can go back, but then you, there'll be other people, I mean, you're like, say, the skeptic, who's sitting there saying, yeah, well, prove it to me, and then there'll be people like you or I, even more seminary trained and such, saying, I don't think you're handling that text properly. Yeah, sure. And there's also, though, uh, another category of people who are well-informed and just have good questions and good faith. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, given that, what about, and then they'll ask a a deeply complex but insightful question. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, that could be that that kind of person as well. Um, So, yeah. But I think those kinds of things are uh, at least giving us a way of thinking about how Paul's ancient audiences. I, you'll notice I always gravitate back to Paul. That's kind of my area. So if I forgive me if I always come back to Paul. But <laughs> now, 
I'm thinking also that we've had Robert Gagnon on the show before talking about his book on the Bible and homosexuality. And he's talked about an area of study, and I'm wondering how it relates to composite quotations. And that's the area of intertextuality. That when you go to Romans 1, there's a law of language, image of God, male and female, creator, and such. And so I'll point you back to Genesis 1 and 2. Now, how does something like that tie in with comp- composite quotations? Because you said that you're not counting allusions yet and such. Uh, is, is there any relation between those two? Yeah, so I don't know Dr. Gagnon's work, so I can't comment upon that. Right. But to, to zoom out uh, to that sort of second idea in your question, um, yeah, certainly the idea that allusions um, often can have composite features. Mm-hmm. I, I, would, I would fully grant that. Um, I think several of the contributors to our volumes were seeing that and sometimes even frustrated that we had limited them. Uh, to the overt or more or less overt quotations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think allusion is in some ways very similar uh, to quotation, but it's not as marked, right? So there's no rhetorical marking. So that idea a moment ago, like what kind of person would hear it and get it and make the connections, right? That's the distinction. That's the difference, right? right. So. Whereas a quotation, when I say, I'm about to quote, right, as Abraham Lincoln says, or as whoever says, right, all of a sudden, even if you don't know the context, you know I'm no longer speaking in my own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but allusion uh, is more subtle. Um, so I think the similar method of combining texts uh, analogously in terms of language, that is lexical words, uh, or um, thematic stuff, um, does account for the way even allusions can be combined or uh, conflated. Um, but we just have that distinction in, uh, in terms of the rhetorical impact within the discourse or within the argument that I think make it the largest distinction. So in that sense, it actually requires more from the listener or the reader because you have to uh, not only catch that it's some sort of scripture use or allusion use, uh, but then maybe even go, oh, it's more than one, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something going on there as well. So what would you recommend that the average person, they get done listening to this show in time, and we've still got more to talk about it, they decide, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to go read through Romans. They come across a quotation of the Old Testament. How would you suggest they handle it in light of composite quotations? Yeah, um, well, if you have a good text in front of you, uh, and there's lots of them, but a good s- sort of study Bible or some sort of critical edition that, that gives you cross-references, footnotes to the sources, look them up. That'd be the first thing I'd do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I do things in an extremely disciplined way. I, I have documents and various things that I'll put things into so that my my mind uh, doesn't have to bear the full weight uh, of all these things. But even just having one full Old and New Testament together, as even I do right here, mm-hmm. right? right? You could thumb through the multiple sources you encounter, um, look at, oh, what are the what's actually the quote going on? Is it similar to the other thing that's quoted? So maybe there are thematic ideas. Um, but then start reading a little bit wider, going, hmm, why would this text be important? 
and why would this text be important next to this one, right? In mm -hmm. other words, why does Paul or Matthew ever bring these into exegetical contact? And so I think trying to just sort of read in good faith, uh, ask, ask why does an author think this way or, or, or uh, frame an argument this way? Um, so, I mean, again, that's, I know that's extremely basic, but I think that's the starting point is just being curious uh, and then just starting to thumb through things. Uh, a more serious answer would be buy the book. <laughs> um, buy, the, buy the book, and um, you can get uh, detailed workings of a number of the texts and some uh, critical analysis from myself and uh, Sean Adams as well. I think part of the thing that people can miss sometimes is that when a writer will quote an Old Testament verse, sometimes they do mean just that passage in isolation, but sometimes they want you to think of the whole chapter or the whole section or something like that. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, there are different schools of thought in terms of minimalism and maximalism on that. Um, I'm probably methodologically more conservative about that. Um, that that's not a ideological position. You know, it's not like liberal or conservative. Just methodologically, I, I need to be convinced case by case that there are sort of massive literary sections implied when one little thing's quoted. Now, I think there's plenty of examples where it is mm -hmm. uh, and where that, that method is fruitful. Uh, but sometimes, in order to make sense of it, I've, I've seen authors, I won't name any names, uh, but I've seen authors try to pull in larger contexts, and they sort of skip over words or texts that would have been problematic uh, before they get to the words that they like mm -hmm. from that larger context, and you sort of go, oh, what about these here? Um, so what I'm trying to say is I think there's actually more to say on uh, that kind of method. Uh, this is a method, of course, pioneered uh, most recently by Richard Hayes' work, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, and Hayes' work is just groundbreaking, ground-shifting. We still talk about it, even though it came out in 1989, um, and has gotten actually a, a new version, uh, Echoes of Scripture in Paul, and now Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels has just come out. Um, but he's really just drawing from literary criticism of the uh, late, late part of the second, uh, 20th century, rather. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the late part of the 20th century, building especially on John Hollander's work, uh, The Figure of Echo, um, and the idea that when a small something is quoted, sometimes a larger context is known. So I think there's something to that, but I think we need to be disciplined about that. I really like, in that vein, uh, a work that actually Richard Hayes really likes uh, and, and uses methodologically and, uh, uh, in his work. It's C.H. Dodd's book, According to the Scriptures. Mm -hmm. And what Dodd argues in that book is that... Um, he lines up kind of all of the, what he calls, non-continuous uh, quotations in the New Testament. Uh, so that is not repeated citations, but like, oh, this part of this verse is quoted, and then this part of that same verse or the next verse is quoted, and then, you know, a few verses later, somebody else quotes from the same psalm or the same section of Isaiah or whatever it is, right? And he says, oh, look, there are these important texts to early Christianity. And they're not just quoting the same verse, therefore, from the same source or, or borrowing it from each other. They seem to be familiar with, like, all of Psalm 22. They seem to be familiar with what we call this, the, 
the Isaacic's servant songs, or you know, a, a whole list of things. So Dodd has a, a list that he calls the Bible of the early church. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just creating a category, thinking about um, what are the texts that early Christians found really important and cited and alluded to a lot, uh, and that they seem to have deep familiarity with. Those those comprise what he calls the Bible of the early church. And for Dodd and for myself, when when people quote from that cluster of texts, I am very comfortable saying they would know the full context, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's demonstrably important and was important to early Christians. All you have to do is just start reading the literature and go, oh, wow, they quote and allude to stuff a lot. They must probably understand full context. Um, when we get to more obscure books, right, like Job or something, <laughs> if, if, if someone quotes from a line or, or three words from Job, would an ancient author be able to pull up a larger literary context or even a less remote, a very close by context, it's harder to say, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I say. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm methodologically conservative. Uh, so there I'd want to see a good case made. And of course, Richard Hayes's um, work does provide a way of uh, analyzing the legitimacy of allusions in any given instance. So uh, he's done his homework on that kind of thing. Everything we do here is listener supported, and we really depend on people like you. And if you'd like to take part in that to help us out, you can go to our website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link that says Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And you go there, you click, and the link takes you to the ministry of Risen Jesus, Mike and Debbie Lacona. Those are my in-laws. You have gone to the right place. You make your donation, you get in touch with me, or my wife, Allie, or Mike, or Debbie, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that we get your donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy some ebooks I've written on Amazon or co-written. Written is a, a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in today's Christian. Co-written are books like Defining Inerrancy. God and Natural Disasters, um, Groundlets, other books I've re- co-written there. And, and guys, um, jewelry. Gotta talk about jewelry. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but for women in your life, we tend to like jewelry. I mean, my own wife is allergic to nickel, and she likes it when I can get her some jewelry. So you go to our jewelry store... And my friend Lena Cluster handles that. Just get in touch with me and let me know. The access code is love. And you purchase some jewelry for that special lady in your life. Whatever you purchase, no added charge to it or anything. If you let her know it's for us, that you heard about it through Deeper Waters and such, 25% of what you purchase will go towards Deeper Waters. So, guys, I mean, this is a great situation for you, especially because you can do something for your 
the Leningrad. You can buy something <laughs> to make up for that big recent screw-up that I know that you recently did. Or you can buy something to, as insurance for that future screw-up that I know you're going to make. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I see you laughing. You're familiar with this, aren't you? <laughs> All too familiar. Yeah. Now, uh, Dr. Ehorn, <laughs> do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to to just echo uh, and, and say, folks, feel free to uh, to support Nick's ministry. That's fine. Okay. Now, when we're talking about the whole issue of uh, composite quotations and such, I, I think some Christians could go to what we were talking about at the very start and say, I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, doesn't this seem like this could present a problem for inerrancy in some situations? And, and maybe if you go with a very strict term, it could, but do you really think this is something that inerrancy should be concerned with? Not at all. I don't think it should be. Um, the limited examples, for example, we talked about earlier, Mark 1 mm. verses 2 3, Matthew 27, 9 and 10, Matthew 13, 35. And maybe this would be a good time to come back to 13, 35 for a moment. Um, okay, let's do that. You know, those three, there's there's very few beyond that mm-hmm. um, where there's an attribution to one and not the other uh, that readers seem to have been concerned about at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my first impulse as a as a scholar is to say, what did ancient authors and writers see and do and mark, and where did they have trouble? <laughs> um, they, they don't seem to have much trouble with most of these quotations, and so I would say our approach should, to some extent, mirror theirs, right? We shouldn't be mm-hmm. alarmed if they weren't. Um, if, we come to, if we come to Matthew 13, 35, I'm just pulling that text up for myself. And um, I'm pouring it out too here. Yeah. Uh, there we, ent- we, we encounter, I think, a useful example for this issue um, that might be a, a nice sort of test ground for the, the question you've asked. Um, 1335 is uh, the evangelist quoting. Uh, he's quoting mainly from the Greek Psalm 77, verse 2, um, or 78-2, if you don't happen to have a, a Greek-numbered Bible. Um, sorry, I'm just getting there in my English text now. Um, 1335. Uh, so here I'll just read it. So that what was written through the prophet might be fulfilled. So notice through the prophet, mm-hmm. uh, without further specification, might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I'll declare things kept in secret from the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. Um my contributor, Martin Mencken, he argues, I think, forcefully, and I'm convinced, uh, there's a text-critical uh, issue there. So we have a variation unit. Is it through the prophet generically, or is it through Isaiah the prophet? So there are witnesses that read uh, and attribute Matthew's text to Isaiah and not to just through the prophet. Mm-hmm. And what what Mencken argues there um, is that, uh, just using text-critical principles, right, is it likely that later copyists would uh, insert an Isianic ascription to a psalm quotation, 
or that they would remove an Isaiahic ascription from a psalm quotation, right? Mm -hmm. It's much more likely that Matthew's text earlier had Isaiah and that later readers fixed it by removing it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a forceful and uh, compelling, to my thinking, argument just uh, from scribal practices. so I think I think it's a virtuous argument in terms of what's going on in the in the text of Matthew. Where that leaves us with then is Matthew thirteen thirty five reading. Uh, now I'll reread it, so that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. And then Matthew quotes from Psalm seventy seven. Mm-hmm. Um, well, again here, it's a conflated text. It's a conflated text, and what he does is conflate a word from Isaiah. And he quotes, he conflates a word from Isaiah, from a text he quoted just a few verses earlier. So if you're looking in Matthew 13, in 13, uh, 14, and 15, he's quoted from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And, I'm sorry, there's another text somewhere as well that I'm looking for. Uh, sorry, Matthew 15, 8, and 9. He also uh, quotes from Isaiah 29, 13, through 14. And the idea here is, the psalm text that's quoted has a conflation from another text that Matthew's quoted in this mm-hmm. nearby context of his gospel, right? Mm-hmm. He flags up the Isaiah bit because that's the thing that, number one, the reader wouldn't know because it sounds like a psalm if they know the psalms. Uh, and two, he wants that framework of Isaiah to be the framework in which uh, the reader in- interprets this text. So... The text in Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 13 to 14, extensively used in early Christianity as a prophecy about the hardening of the majority of Israel. Uh, And so conflating uh, Psalm 77 and Isaiah 29 actually brings it uh, into close contact, right? I will open my mouth in parables, right? Jesus speaking parables that confuse, right? Mm-hmm. Especially, especially Mark has this, has this theme, but Matthew pulls it over a bit, doesn't he, from Mark. Uh, the idea that his teaching confuse or, or confound certain people. Uh, and yet, uh, I'll declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world, right? So the idea of hidden things and then things revealed. The psalm has that, but it's building from this idea of Isaiah 29, where there's a, a talk about a hardening on some and the hiddenness of God being revealed to others. Mm-hmm. Um, so these sort of classic texts that, that seem to be problems for some, I think, I think have reasonable explanations uh, literarily in terms of composition techniques. I think they have good explanations. And so I don't see from that perspective uh, anything that would compromise the text's authority or uh, inerrancy or anything like that. Um, we could talk about it for, from more of an ideological perspective as well, but I, I think a number of the, the data pieces, I think, just fall into place in a way that I don't think those issues are compromised in any way. But you can feel free to follow up if you'd like. Yeah, what would you say from a more ideological perspective? I mean, like I said, that there are some people who are say that if you say, for instance, in Mark 1, Isaiah, where, lo and behold, you have an error... And thankfully, the majority text corrects this error so that we don't have a problem with inerrancy. Yeah. Well, there's a whole thing going on there with majority text and perhaps KJV-only people that I'll, mm-hmm. I won't address that. But um, 
that's certainly an ideological critique that needs to happen there. But I think the idea that the text needed to be rescued in the first place, I mean, we, we could just go after that a little bit and say, when you see this kind of, uh, of textual handling happening, right? Mm-hmm. We, shouldn't, we shouldn't expect uh, our authors that we're concerned about, gospel, Paul, whatever, to behave in a sort of alien way, right? Uh, they were born, they lived in the, in the times they lived in. We should expect them to look and breathe and act and, and perform and write the way they do. It would be weird if they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of an ideological critique would be, why are we so concerned about this if what, they, what they're doing looks a lot like these wider patterns? Um, and other, other people don't find these, these kinds of things concerning. Maybe, again, the problem is us. Mm-hmm. Maybe the problem is us coming with the wrong questions and the wrong concerns as, as readers ourselves. Um, now, the fact that we might handle a text differently or that we strive for pre, you know, precision in a different way, right, mm-hmm. isn't a bad thing. No. But I don't think we're in a position to say it's the right way to do it either, right? Mm-hmm. So I... I'm an editor, right? So I, I edit a lot, and, and I care about precision and accuracy, and I play by my own rules that I'm made to play by in our in our day and age. Um, but that doesn't make them right. And you know, 30, 40, 300 years from now, there might be a different set of rules. The conventions will change, presumably, and uh, maybe people will look back on us and go, "What were those silly people doing?" Um, and I think that would be probably just as wrong, right? They, they should hold right. us to the standards that we had at our time and say, did you play by those rules? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this comes back to the whole question, I suppose, of culture. That when it comes to the biblical text, what culture is going to dominate? Is it going to be the modern Western American culture, or is it going to be the ancient Hebrew-Jewish Mediterranean culture? That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Now, let's talk some, in fact, about what goes on outside of the Bible. As well, you said Plutarch does this a whole lot? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'll qualify that whole lot. He, Plutarch quotes thousands of times. Yeah. Um, I found, and I, I discussed about 30 or so examples in Plutarch. Um, if I included more condensed quotations from him, that mm-hmm. number would be higher. Not not statistically significant, not higher in a statistically significant way, but higher, sure. So, I mean, it's, it's making up kind of a low percent. But the examples are interesting. The examples are, uh, many of them, clear. Uh, so, you know, the, I have an example or two that I thought, oh, yeah, it's, this could have been a mistake, um, a memory error or something. But I have a number of examples where it's a text that's known to be part of uh, an educational program in antiquity, so like a, a school text that uh, students would have learned growing up, uh, and they're playing with it, and they're having fun with it, or they're using it for argument or something, right? Um, and it's hard to argue that a text you've memorized as a youth and spent years on learning how to write and learning how to do school exercises on, right, that you would just make a silly, careless mistake in a in a high literary work, right? I find that I find that difficult to uh, I find that to be an unreasonable uh, way of thinking about it. So Plutarch does this kind of stuff with skill, 
and um, for me, that was that was an exciting find. It, it, it was, in fact, one of the birthplaces of this project. There was a few, uh, but my own sort of entry into this project was I was reading a lot of Plutarch, and I started finding what I discovered were composite quotations in Plutarch, and thought, oh, I've seen these in Paul. This is interesting, and start taking note of them, and oh, 30 or so later, oh, that might be something to say here. So <clears throat> what we'd say is, well, Plutarch's obviously not going to screw up a text he's known all his life and that all his readers would know. So would this again also be you know, like point, trying to point people to a broader context and him trying to show his literary ability and such? Yeah, so there are a number of examples like that, like when he quotes, um, I mean, Homer, uh, uh, of course, being such an important text, uh, the Iliad especially, um, but uh, Euripides, uh, a particular section of Phoenician women, um, w- was known to be a, a school text. And so, yeah, certainly anyone else with requisite education and certainly a good number of Plutarch's works, um, I, I won't claim all, but a good number of them would have circulated among his friends and other, you know, other readers of interest, people well-educated. Um, and certainly some of his works are also being written for younger men who are in their education or, or in some stage of their education. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's sort of pointing out virtuous practices or, or, or how to study poetry, for example, how to take the good from a poet but not the bad, right? Don't, don't follow their character but follow their literary practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, his, his readers are... Uh, I think on the on the sort of higher echelon in that sense, but that doesn't mean that other people didn't engage with Plutarch if someone had had a text and could read it to them. But certainly, many of his readers would have been uh, reasonably well educated. How about another historian of a more Jewish persuasion, and that would of course be Josephus. I mean, do we see him using this? Yeah, um, we actually initially for the first book had asked someone to take a look at that for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we didn't end up having a chapter on it, not because uh, essentially because we didn't know that there was enough data. Um, I'm confident that there are composite allusion, rewritten uh, scripture kinds of combining, but um, insofar as our, our initial look as, as editors of this book uh, and then our initial contributor, who ended up not contributing, mm-hmm. um, we, di- we didn't find any clear-cut quotations. So that doesn't mean that they're not there. There might be one, but perhaps we've missed it. But uh, I'd like to say, if there are any, we had a hard time finding them. Um, and uh, we found a lot more, so uh, it might mean that there aren't any. But I, mm-hmm. I just want to be careful and say, maybe there are. It's hard to say, though. There's not a lot, if there are. How about the Dead Sea Scrolls? There, um, there's definitely a good number there. Um, Mm -hmm. So we had uh, two contributors in the first book that uh, touched on works from the Dead Sea Scrolls, Garrick Allen and then John Norton, Uh, the Damascus document, and uh, I think the Community Scroll uh, is what uh, uh, Garrick Allen looked at. Mm -hmm. Um, They both, you know, looked at two, three kind of texts, um, just because, you know, they wanted to say a lot about a few small texts. Um, and 
I think they did fine work on that. Um, but they both uh, mentioned there's a lot more going on. There are other examples. And I remember uh, Garrick Allen um, pointed out that uh, there are examples of other quotations, but more than that, composite illusion or combined illusion seems to be a much more predominant way that uh, Jewish scribal exegetes at Qumran, at least the text he looked at, seem to be engaging uh, with this kind of method. And so uh, that's exciting. Uh, it just happened to be an area that we didn't focus on as much with these volumes, but hopefully an area that we've left open some avenues for uh, others to, to do some good work on in the future. Now, I'm sure you'd say, like many people out there in the scholarly world, that since you've put together these volumes, you're, in essence, at this point, only scratching the surface and getting things started. What do you want to see future scratchers do as they dig deeper underneath? Yeah. Um, well, I can speak maybe to two different kinds of, of people that might um, be interested in, in the kind of things we're working on. Um, I mean, the one way would be to to produce fresh scholarship mm -hmm. uh, on these kinds of things. So we've, we've pointed out a number of possible areas for, for future scholarship in the conclusion of, of the forthcoming second volume, uh, Composite Citations in Antiquity, New Testament Uses. Um, some of those areas are as mundane as how we present composite texts in critical editions or even English or other uh, language translation. So someone might go through a, uh, a Greek Bible or a German Bible or an English Bible and go, hmm, you know, where are we putting the quote marks on every composite text form? Or are we bolding certain words? Or are we italicizing certain words? And um, so that would be one uh, area of contribution and to ask the critical questions of, hmm, uh, what editorial decisions are framing the way we read this text now currently? And mm -hmm. can we address those going forward? Um, Beyond that, though, uh, composite illusion itself, picking, you know, maybe picking a, a, a particular corpus, pseudophilo, or a particular uh, Dead Sea Scrolls text or something, or getting into patristic authors, looking at uh, how they handle things, um, rewritten Bible or, re or so-called rewritten scripture, um, seems to have lots of similarities with the kinds of things we're talking about. That is retelling and re-narrating stories from uh, Israel scripture, uh, but often moving around elements or conflating elements from other parts of uh, uh, Israel scripture into part of a retelling. Mm -hmm. uh, this has conceptual uh, similarities with what we're looking at. Yeah, so there's, uh, there's lots of open vistas. I think those with expertise, uh, uh, I hope, will... Uh, you know, we'll work with uh, the original languages and, and these things and, and produce fresh scholarship. And it's something that I know uh, myself and uh, uh, Sean Adams are, are actively uh, looking forward to doing uh, and hopefully uh, uh, sharing in some of that research going forward. Um, those who are uh, interested, but perhaps interested lay readers, right? What can they do? Yeah. Um, you know, again, I got to get all my book plugs in. You could buy the books <laughs> or check them out from the library. They're expensive. They're they're books written for scholars. They're expensive. I, you know, yeah. that's just the way it is. Um, so get it from the library. Uh, um, that'd be 
the, the best way to do it. But you could read them, uh, engage with the arguments, um, especially the conclusions and the introductions of both books. And if it excites you, you know, start reading even in English or whatever is your native language, uh, reading these texts even in translation and just read them in good faith as an as a intelligent reader, looking up sources, things like that, and start to th think and ask the kinds of questions that uh, we've been addressing today. Why would an author pull these things into a similar orbit? Why would they conflate this text with, with that? And I think there's a lot of exciting uh, opportunities awaiting uh, when we ask those kinds of questions in good faith. Have you received any feedback from the scholarly community yet on this project? Yeah, um, you know, there's been a couple of reviews, book reviews that have come out in various journals. Um, I don't remember, I mean, I, I, I don't remember any, any like zingers or anything, but um, yeah, in, in general, it's been, it's been well received so far. I mean, uh, the challenge of an edited volume is sometimes they can lack focus. Mm -hmm. So it's just a collection of a bunch of random people saying whatever they want. It can be a too many cooks spoil up a broth sometimes. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that um, this volume, I, I hope, both of these volumes actually, being so focused on a particular topic um, and even a particular set of time, uh, you know, time frame and even corpora, I hope we've avoided that problem of being unfocused. Um, mm. So nobody's, nobody's criticized us for lacking focus. Um, so that's been that's been good, um, just in some uh, conversations and even presenting some of these things at conferences over the past two or three years. Uh, people have been excited about uh, the project and about just having a systematic uh, addressing of composite uh, ideas uh, in, in in text. And it's really been it's been a long time about a, about a hundred years actually before we've had major studies on this stuff. Um, there's been a, a you know spattering here and there of a few uh, random authors, but um, yeah, critical, extensive reflection on this has been about a hundred years um, by my reckoning, um, and so I think there's the sense of oh, it's fresh because it's been a while. So um, I'm happy to just be on that train of you're excited about it because it's new again. So mm -hmm. yeah. since you've had these two volumes released here, do you know what the next step? that you plan to take in this research is? Yeah, um, probably all I can say about it at this moment is my co-editor and I, Sean Adams, are interested in pursuing some of the lines of inquiry that we set forth in the conclusion of Volume 2, mm -hmm. um, and some of which I've just talked about uh, moments ago, so I won't repeat them. Um, uh, I won't elaborate on what I mean by that, but we, we yeah. are hoping to, to to carry forward some of these lines um, uh, and perhaps perhaps do do some of the work ourselves. What I can tell you is I've got a paper uh, I've read at the Society of Biblical Literature on composite quotations in the Epistle of Barnabas. It needs a little bit more love from me. I, I need to spend a little bit more time uh, fixing it up uh, for publication. Uh, but at some point, I'll I'll send it off uh, and and hope for the best <laughs> mm. uh, from peer review. Um, but in addition to that, we have another interesting one. Uh, Sean and I have another shared article uh, that's going to um, be coming out 
in the next year or two uh, in a Brill monograph on um, composite quotations in ancient Greek manuscripts. So we'll look at how authors marked quotations and, and especially composite quotations, if and how. So changing attributions, marks in the column. So it's looking at that kind of thing. It, it's part of a larger study on marginalia in early uh, manuscripts. So there's, there's a handful of things sort of coming in the pipeline related to it, but also some broadening uh, to some of the issues we address in the uh, future research section of Volume 2. Yeah, I, I think I kind of indicated at the start that when I was first told about the topic of composite quotations, I thought, well, that's interesting, but there was like maybe, what, four or five in the New Testament that you can go to, and then I read your conclusions about how about 20% of Romans' quotations is included in this category. Has it really surprised you how much composite quotations are showing up? Yeah, um, that's something we, we reflect on a little bit in the conclusion itself, is we, we have these statistics for the New Testament, right? What percentage of the quotations uh, across the whole New Testament are composite as opposed to just normal? Normal. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they, they seem high, right, 20% or so, as, yeah. as you say. Um, we don't have a, you know, I don't have a statistic for every other author. I mean, I, I could tell you a rough statistic if I did some number crunching uh, mm -hmm. on Plutarch. I, but, you know, I don't have a statistic for every author. But we can say with confidence just having sort of fostered this project or, you know, worked, uh, theoried this project through its stages that the percentages – are higher in the, in the New Testament mm -hmm. than much of the other literature, right? Right. Um, certainly higher. So we thought, okay, why? I, I think that's an that's an area that that could be explored more. One area we suggest, though, in the conclusion is there's probably a historical impetus. So there's a historical reason. Um, we suggest following. Uh, Davies and Allison, in, in I think it's I think it was their commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, they suggest that Jesus is presented as handling uh, quotations um, in a particular way, composite forms, uh, and so his followers start to do it that way, and then later readers of even the Gospels and, and other texts start to do what Jesus is presented as doing. I think. You know, we, we could have a long discussion about the historical Jesus and whatever, but I think if we just treat it as literary, just for the purposes of this conversation, and say mm -hmm. the Gospels present him in certain instances doing this, that itself is probably enough to account for a literary tradition and practice of, of his followers being presented doing the same thing, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, the Gospel of Luke presents Jesus as extremely literate, right? He handles a scroll of Isaiah. He finds the place. He reads it, right? That's like uber literate. Uh, and then his followers, right, are uber literate. Right? Peter and Paul give these compelling speeches in the book of Acts uh, that are steeped in Israel's tradition and history, right? So they're doing the same kinds of things that he does endowed by the Spirit. Mm. Um, so there's a sense in which uh, the followers match uh, the one they follow in, in the way they, they live and act. And mm -hmm. so we just suggest, you know, we're, we're not, it, it's hard to know to some extent, but we suggest that that's at least a live option, right? That 
Jesus's own practice and citation, uh, the way he handles text, mm -hmm. uh, as presented in these Gospels, could have been the impetus, the historical reason. Now, mm -hmm. again, it's hard to say, but that's a that's a reasonable, I think, place to place to land for mm -hmm. now. Well, Doctor, anyone we've uh, come to the time where we need to start wrapping things up. You have a blog, a website, an email, right? People can get in touch with you if they want to find out more. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a blog, um, but if anyone wanted to get in touch with me, I am on uh, uh, Wheaton College's website. So if you just go to Wheaton College, I think it's uh, wheaton.edu. Uh, you can find me listed there under the faculty. Uh, so I have a little bio, a photo, and uh, contact information all on that website. So that's probably the easiest way. And I like to let people know um, the books. There is volume one and volume two out right now. I've got them. Bring up on my phone. We have Composite Citations of Antiquity, Volume 1, Jewish, Greco-Roman, and Early Christian Usage. And now, this is a steal right here. Volume 1 is only sixty-four ninety. if you are <laughs> interested Good in deal. that one. It doesn't look like it's out on Kindle yet. But if you want Volume 2, Composite Citations of Antiquity, Volume 2, New Testament Uses... That's also a steal right now. It's just $108.30. <laughs> so, yeah, um, go to your library if you really want to get this best and such. And um, do you have a, anyone, do you have any final words you'd like to leave for a Deeper Waters audience? Um, let's see. I think I would want to say, um, probably echoing some of the, some of the themes we talked about earlier, right? Mm. Uh, when, when we're reading, be aware of what the questions that drive us aren't always the questions that drove ancient authors, right? Um, that doesn't mean they're bad questions, right? It's still worth asking the questions we want to ask, but we can't let that prejudge and predetermine the answers uh, that we're looking for in an ancient text. So mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a lot of exciting things to find when we read widely in, in ancient literature and when we get after mm -hmm. uh, uh, the things that interest them. When we do that, I think we can find uh, uh, some of the things that we thought were problems aren't problems anymore, and some of the things that we maybe didn't see before we see with fresh eyes, and perhaps composite quotations are one of those things. So. Mm. Well, Dr. Ewan, I'd like to thank you for coming on, and hope we will see you back here again sometime. Yeah, I'd like that. Mm. I mind everyone that next week we're going to have Rosaria Butterfield on, talking about her life coming out of being a lesbian and now being a pastor's wife of all things. For now, I am Nick Peters and I'm signing off. <laughs> <laughs>